0: before the service at 8.30, so if you uh, think of joining us, please join us for that. We, uh, we are aware of one thing, that we desperately need God, right? Amen. If anything is going to happen, it's not, it's not because you have an eloquent speaker, it's not because uh, you have great illustrations, it's because God has determined to work through His Word, to save souls, and to keep his people in the faith. And so let's continue to pray and remember that we do have a time of prayer before the service at 8.30. If you can join us, please join us for that. All right, I remember being at camp and going to the rifle range. (laughs) And uh, I remember um, I was young and I was... They were teaching me how to use a rifle and and so I was I was shooting at that target and after shooting at the target I went to look at how I had done and I pretty much missed everything on every shot. And I was thinking, you know, I might not be the best aim, but there's got to be something wrong here. And there was something wrong. I was closing the wrong eye. <laughs> And so in some ways, shooting at that target with the wrong eye closed is kind of like trying to figure out life without understanding God. But in some ways, it's not anything like shooting at the target because it is possible you could get close to the target by accident, right? (laughs) But it is impossible to get life right without understanding God. It's impossible. In fact, what we end up with is death and judgment. So if knowing God is this important, then we need to ask, how then can we know this God? And we might question to ourselves, do we piece together like a puzzle everyone's different opinions out there? I mean there are as many opinions as there are people out there. And many of them are the same opinions. <laughs> and the problem with people's opinions is that everyone's opinion is wrong. Now, that can that can sound kind of arrogant, can it when you say that? When you go out there and say everyone's opinion is wrong, it sounds like you're a little arrogant. How do I know that everyone's opinion is wrong? And the reason we know that is because God is not like us. God is not a part of this creation. He is the other, He is outside of us. And so, why do we make God to be like us? Because that's all we know. I mean, it is completely foolish to imagine God being like us, but what else would we do? If we were to try to figure out what God is like, of course, we would create him and make him to look just like us. He would fit into our understanding. He would look like things that we know. We we couldn't do anything else. We would make him to look just like us. Now I'm not saying we couldn't come up with some basic attributes of who God is from creation because the Bible says we can, right? Creation bears witness to the reality that God, for instance, is all-powerful. But that's not really enough to understand the other. That's not really enough to understand who God really is. So the only way to know God, the only way to really understand who this other really is is if God reveals himself to us if God is outside of us if God is not like us then the only way to know him is if he makes himself known to us otherwise we will always create God to look like our own imaginations and to look like us and the good news is and this is really good news And let's for a moment not take it for granted. The good news is that God has made himself known to us. He's revealed himself through his word that he has given to us. Is there anything more precious to us this morning than the word of God? Well, there shouldn't be. The Bible is God's revelation of himself to us. The Bible is not primarily about us. Sorry. (laughs) It's primarily about God. God is revealing Himself to people who would otherwise never know Him and never be able to figure Him out. And what we need to understand this morning is that in His revelation of Himself, God has supremely revealed Himself through His Son. Jesus is God's final and fullest revelation of Himself to us. In fact, Jesus said in John 14, verse 9, He who has seen me has seen the Father. If you want to know God, you have to know Jesus. Otherwise, you cannot know who God is. This is likely the very reason why why John decides to identify the Son of God as the Word in the first couple of verses here. Did you notice that? In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And I believe the reason that John identifies Jesus as the Word is because he is the revelation of God to us. He is the fullest and the final revelation of God to us. He is the full disclosure of God to us. And this is the same point made elsewhere if we had more time in Hebrews 1 verse 1 through 3, John 10 verse 30, John 14 verse 9. This is everywhere. It climaxes in the appearance of God. Here is the Word of God manifested in flesh to us. That as John said in 1 John, we have touched, we have heard, we have seen the Word made flesh. This is amazing. The word speaking to us. Now, what is really significant is that God was silent for 400 years before the word of God burst on the scenes. I like to think of it as the longest pregnant pause ever. <laughs> right? You know, the pregnant pause is getting us ready for something to happen. The baby to come. And then, boom! Boom! <laughs> Here is the supreme word of God that has come to us. God was setting the scene to make it the dr- most dramatic it could possibly be. So the purpose of this entire book is to reveal God to us through Jesus Christ so that you might believe in him and have life. And, and when I say to have life, what I mean is to be saved. Saved. And this is exactly what John says is the purpose of the book. And it's interesting, we are told what the purpose is in John 20, verse 31, at the very end of the book. We read, These are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. And so the first 18 verses here, you might call the prologue. Or actually, a better way of saying it might be the, 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 the narrator speaking Before the curtain is raised, if you go to a play, sometimes the narrator would set the stage for the play. He will tell you the introduction so that you understand what the play is all about. And that's exactly what these first 18 verses are. They're getting ready for the curtain to lift and then for the story to begin so that we are ready and prepared for the story kind of the background, and it actually has been said, and I find this fascinating, that every main point in the book of John is introduced in these first 18 verses. And these main points will be developed throughout the whole book and expanded upon. So the first five verses we're going to look at today will simply answer the question, what are the most basic realities that you need to know in order to understand who Jesus is. John is beginning to identify Jesus to us, and this will prepare us for the curtain to raise and for the story of Jesus to be laid out before us so that you might believe and have life. So the first thing you need to know about Jesus is that he is the preexistent one who preexisted creation. We see this in the first few verses of the gospel. In the beginning was the word. John says, if you are to understand who Jesus is, right? Because that's what we're looking at. Then you must begin by going back. And you must go way back. Way back before the nativity. Way back before the birth of Christ. You must go back to the very beginning of creation. The phrase in the beginning is intended to lead us to John Genesis 1, verse 1. John intentionally uses these words to bring us back to the first words of the Bible in Genesis. And he wants us to know that at this time Jesus was pre-existing. We might wonder why doesn't John start his gospel at the birth of Jesus? I mean, we love that story. Why don't we begin there? And that's where most of the Gospels start. Why doesn't John do that? And I think the reason is because he wants us to have a fuller understanding of who Jesus is before he comes on the scene. There's nothing wrong with starting with the Nativity. That's not bad. But if you want to identify and know who Jesus is, you've got to go farther back than that. So what does the fact that Jesus was pre-existing at the very beginning tell us about him? What's the significance of that? Well, it tells us that he always was existing. If he was existing at creation, it means he was existing before that. And if he was existing before creation, that means he was always existing. It means he is eternal. There was never a time when he was not existing. There was never a time when he was created. He stands outside, above, beyond creation. This immediately dispels any notion that Jesus can be in any way thought of or associated with idols of man's imaginations. He is not something of creation. He is not something that we would imagine or make up or create or compare to this world. You can say, therefore, that the best place to begin identifying who Jesus is is not by associating him with creation, but associating him with God. And that's exactly what John is doing. He wants us to take Jesus and begin not associating him with creation, but associating him with God. And that's what he's doing for for these first five verses. The second thing you need to know about Jesus is that he was with God at the beginning. Notice the next phrase. And the word was with God. What might it mean when someone says someone was with someone? (laughs) Well, it's pretty obvious that you could mean simply that they are in the same location as someone else, right? If you're with someone, you're in the same location. But you also could mean that you're in relationship with someone, right? And I think both of those are what John is trying to bring across here. That in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was in location with God, and the Word was in relationship with God. This means that the Father and the Son are distinct in personhood. The Son is a person, the Father is a person, and the Spirit is a person. And the reason I say this is because some people say That they are not separate persons, just modes of one being. But that's not true. (laughs) That's unbiblical. And this gives us a brief glimpse into what Jesus was doing in eternity past before the creation of the world. What was he doing? He was in relationship with God, he was sharing a unique relational bond with the Father and the Spirit from eternity past. And how do we know this beyond what it says here? That's exactly what Jesus said in John 17, verse 5. He missed that relational bond that he had for eternity. And could you blame him? (laughs) He says this. This is what he wants. This is his prayer. Glorify me in your presence with the glory I had with you before the world existed. The third thing you need to know about Jesus is that he is God. That is what we see in the next phrase of John's gospel. And the word was God. So what does it mean to say that Jesus is God? Well, it means that he is the very essence of God. He is the nature of God. He is the very being of God himself. His deeds and his words are the deeds and the words of God himself. That's what that means. It means everything that can be said about God can also be said about Jesus. And, and so I ask you um, sometimes we need to ask the obvious when we're reading scriptures. Is it possible to give any greater description of anyone than to say that they are God? Well, there isn't possibly any greater way of describing anyone. This is the height. It doesn't go any higher than this. There's creation and there's God, right? And Jesus is God, right? So, why does John say that Jesus is with God and then immediately after that say that Jesus was God himself? What is he trying to do? What is he saying here? And I think he wants to identify Jesus as being a distinct person from God the Father and God the Spirit, while at the same time identifying him as being God himself, as God's Son. The point is to call attention to Christ's deity while distinguishing him in person from the Father and the Spirit. Three in one. (laughs) Three persons, one God. Now some would argue, most famously Jehovah's Witnesses, that what John means here is to say that Jesus is merely a God rather than God himself. And so the question is, why in the world would they say that? And they say that because in the Greek, there's no definite article that precedes the word for God. And the definite article is what we often uh, translate as the, right? A particular person in this case. So they place an A in front of the word God. In the beginning was a God is what they say. They even came up with their own translation called the New World Translation. So, in other words, they are claiming that Jesus is less than fully God. They are saying he is a God in a sense, one of many gods, but he is not the true and only God. Now, it is true that there is no definite article in the Greek manuscript. But that does not mean at all that John is intending to say that Jesus is a God rather than the God. There are many places in the New Testament where there is no article, yet it is clearly referring to a specific person, place, or thing, even though the author did not place an article before it. In such cases, you have to determine if the author is referring to a specific person, place, or thing based on context. The context determines the meaning. And let me tell you, in this chapter, chapter 1, verse 49, what is translated as, you are the king of Israel, has no definite article before the king. And yet it is translated as the king. Everywhere you will find it. Verse 6, verse 12, verse 13, and verse 18 are all examples where God is mentioned without the definite article, but it is clearly referring to a specific person who is God. The same thing is true here. The context shows us that this is clearly referring to Jesus as the God. (laughs) He is God. The good news is that this is not the only place where we can find an argument that clearly tells us that Jesus is God. For instance, at the very end of the gospel, when resurrected, Jesus appears to doubting Thomas. Do you remember what Thomas does? Do you remember what he says about Jesus? He falls before him and cries out, my Lord and my God. (laughs) And Jesus does not deny it. Jesus receives it and he welcomes it. But you should beware that Jehovah's Witness will make another argument. They will say that Jesus cannot be God because it doesn't make sense. They will say the Trinity doesn't make sense. How can you have three persons, one God? And they've made this argument to me. And you want to know what my response is? I love it when they tell me that. (laughs) I tell them, well, that's really interesting because I think it actually is an indication that maybe we are on to something if we cannot comprehend God himself. If we could comprehend and understand God with our language and with our minds, then I would think that maybe you made him up. Maybe you created him with your own mind. And the very fact that God is beyond our comprehension, that we can't understand him, does not in any way take away from the reality that maybe it's true but actually indicates that maybe this is the truth, right? And so that's a really easy answer you can give someone if they give you that argument. You can go ahead and use it. What does it matter to you and me if Jesus is God? It means that his deeds and his actions and the words are the deeds and actions and words of God, as we've already mentioned. But just think about that. Therefore, the rest of the book of the Gospel of John will make sense to you. (laughs) Therefore, you should treat Jesus as if he was God. You should worship him as Thomas did. You should say, you should bow to him and say, my Lord and my God. You should obey him, love him, and follow him as you would God. Martin Luther stated this, everything depends on this doctrine. It serves to maintain and support all the other doctrines of our Christian faith. The fourth thing you should know about Jesus is that he is the creator of everything. That is what it says in verse 3. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. Notice that it doesn't just say that Jesus created everything here, it says it twice in the positive way (laughs) and the negative way. And that is a way of emphasizing something. It's as if to say, not just most things, And not just everything, but everything. (laughs) He created everything. Everything that exists, that will exist, that has existed, exists because God created it. What does that mean? It means that he stands outside of creation with God as God. There is the created and there is God. God stands outside of creation with God. It also means that God stands above his creation. He has the sole rights to his creation. He has authority and rule over everything he's made. So he stands outside his creation. He stands above his creation. It all belongs to him. What does this mean for us, his creatures? It means he owns you. (laughs) You are owned. You don't belong to yourself. You belong to him. He has every right over you. You have no right to determine how you will worship God or who you will worship. Whether you acknowledge him or not, he has complete rights over you. The fifth thing you need to know about Jesus is really an application of the last point. That as creator, Jesus is the possessor and giver of life. In him was life and the life was a light of men. Can you see how this progresses from him creating everything to him being the possessor and giver of life? They flow together. So what does it mean to say that Jesus is the possessor of life? It means that he is the source of all life. He is the source of all life physical and he is the source of all life spiritual. And we see this in creation and in the new creation. If you see a baby that is born, that has life, that life that you see right before you came from Jesus. Have you ever thought about that? When you're looking at a life, a new baby, a newborn baby, think, this life came from Jesus. Therefore, we have no right to kill it. <laughs> we have no right to kill it, whether it's in the womb or outside of the womb. When you see someone believing in Jesus, that spiritual life came from Jesus. If you understand that Jesus is the possessor of life, it should help you to understand how serious and how awful our condition is because of our sin. Sin is simply saying this. Sin is saying, I want to be independent of God. I don't want God to have rule over me. I want to have rule over my own life. I want to have my own destiny. I want to be separated from God. I want to be my own God. And you know what it means to be separated from God who is life? To be separated from the life is to be dead. That's what it means. You cannot be separated from God and have life. And that's exactly what happened to us when we sinned, didn't we? We died. We died spiritually and began the process of dying physically. That will eventually lead us to the second death, which is eternal death and separation from God. How horrific is sin? And how little do we comprehend how horrific sin really is, right? When you think about it, all life is in God. <laughs> and sin is Pursuing independence, seeking independence, rising up and rebelling against God, saying, I can do things better apart from you. And the consequence of separation from God is death. Ephesians 2 verse 1 says that you are dead in your trespasses and sins. This should help you understand why you need the life giver so badly. You don't just need a a tune-up. You don't just need a tune-up. You don't need tweaking. You need a new life from God. You are dead and you need life. And the good news is that Jesus is the life giver who has come to give us life. He can reconcile you to God. The one who created the world is able to give you life. He has sufficient life to give you life. An abundance of life. A never-ending source of life. Jesus came to us not to hide in a corner in the dark, but to shine so that you might see him and have life. He came to be the light of men. Ephesians 2 verse, says, 2 verse 3 says, but God made you alive. And how does this happen? How does God give us life? Through faith in Jesus Christ. And this is what John 3 verse 36 tells us. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life but the wrath of God remains on him. We are to believe in Jesus, who he is, and what he has done on the cross as the basis for our life and the forgiveness of our sins. This life that Jesus gives and offers is real life, not merely something in the future, but it is something that he gives to us the very moment that we are delivered and saved and united with Christ. The moment we are in Christ by faith, we begin to live this life that never ends. Jesus said this in John 10, verse 10, I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. When Jesus gives us life, we begin to share a testimony to the world that bears witness that we have life in us. Jesus said this in John 8, verse 12, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. We begin to actually love God and to love people. That's what life is. Selfishness is death. But to love God and to love others is life. Our lives become a testimony of God's life-giving work in us. And know this today, that if you miss Jesus, you miss life. There is no life outside of God. God could not give you life outside of himself because it is not found there. There is no hope of life outside of Jesus. And that's why we are so thankful that Jesus points us to himself. We're so thankful that John is not about you and John is not about me. We're thankful that John is about Jesus. Because that's what we need. The sixth thing you need to know about Jesus and the final thing we're going to look at today is that he has been and will be victorious over all opposition. He is invincible. And that is what we read in verse 5. The light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. So Jesus coming into this world was supposed to think of him as this bright and brilliant light. You know? Um, we don't think of the nativity as being, you know, it's, it's all dark and, and it probably was at times, you know, obviously. But, but when you think about it, it was really this brilliant light that had come to this dark world. The most brilliant blinding light was God coming to us. And this is exactly what Isaiah prophesied the coming of Jesus would be like in Isaiah 9, verse 2. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shined. So what is this light? It is purity. It is truth. It is righteousness. This is what life looks like. And Jesus shines this life perfectly because this is who he is. He uh, he is these things. He is God. What is the darkness that is being shined upon? Darkness is impurity, lies, and evil. This is what death looks like. It is everything that opposes God. So what happens when darkness, when light shines on the darkness? What, What happens when you turn on that light and you walk into the room? Well, it exposes everything, doesn't it? It reveals it for what it is. And so when the light comes, it not only shines purity, truth, but it also exposes the ugliness of impurity and lies and evil. It exposes it. In John 3 verse 20, Jesus said they will not come to the light because it exposes their evil deeds. And by the way, this is especially true with religious people. Religious people who are in the darkness, do not want their darkness to be exposed. So they become particularly angry when the truth comes in their path. They hate the light because of what it says about them. And their purpose is to cover up their darkness. And that is exactly why the Jews responded to Jesus the way they did They did everything they could to extinguish the light and overcome it. They even nailed him to the cross and they thought they had gained victory over him, didn't they? They thought they had overcome him and it did look like they had and even today there are times when it looks like the darkness is going to overcome the light, right? But what really happened? What was the result of the world's opposition? Did they overcome him? No, the darkness did not overcome him. It was impossible, in fact, to overcome him. And really, the not overcoming here is a completed action. (laughs) A verb, it, it, it speaks to completed action here. In other words, the light was victorious, invincible over the darkness. This is kind of like getting the cliff notes to the story, isn't it? Or reading the conclusion the story at the very beginning. Here we are at the prologue to the book of John and we're already told what's going to happen. We're like, oh man. <laughs> but actually it's great news, isn't it? It's great news. God will always win. There was, there, was never, there was never a time when he might not win. God always wins. He declared victory through his resurrection from the dead. His resurrection was a declaration of victory over every enemy that stood against him. And the light continues to shine today. If the overcoming was a past accomplishment, then the shining here is a continuous shining. And today, he continues to shine in his victory. What about those who love the light? What is the reaction? From those who love the light. We said that the reaction of those who love darkness is they hate the light, right? But those who love the light will respond with repentance and faith. They will bow to the light and follow the light because they are alive. And that's what living people do. The result will be that they will become light. That's what Matthew 5, verse 14 says. You are the light of the world. And through Jesus, we become light. So, what is your response to the light? Does the light anger you? Does the light seem worthless to you? Or does the light compel you to repent and to believe and to follow him? I began by saying if you don't get God right, you don't get anything right. That it's impossible to get anything else right without getting God right. While we are looking at some of the most basic things and realities about who God is, about who Jesus is, God revealed through Jesus Christ. That he existed before the beginning of time. That he was with God. He is God. He is the creator. He is the possessor and giver of life. He is victorious over every enemy. He is the final and full revelation of God to us. But how do we know where we are standing with Jesus right now? How do we know if we understand him? How do we know if we get him? Well, there's a story from Peter's life that illustrates for us how our lives will begin to look like when we begin to understand who Jesus is. In John 6 verse 67 Jesus asked his disciples will you leave as well (laughs) you see there were many of them who left it says many of his disciples left Jesus you know that happened even to Jesus (laughs) they left him they deserted him it was too hard for them they turned back to other things that looked better so he asked his disciples do you want to leave too in other words Do you want to leave for a better opportunity? Do you see something that appears better to you? A more lucrative job that's been offered to you? Do you remember what Peter said in response? Did he he say, I have a huge crop. Let me first get my crop and then I'll follow you. Did he say, "Uh, there's a huge catch of fish today. I need to first do that and then I will follow you. No, he didn't, did he? He answered in John 6, verse 68, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. This was the right answer. This is someone who is seeing and loving the light. He was saying everywhere else is a lie. The promises are lies, but in you is life. You are the only way, the only truth, and the only life. And it's only found in Jesus. If you understand who Jesus says, then you're going to say the same thing That Peter said. Your confession is going to be the same as Peter. You will repent and you will believe. And you won't need people to stand here and to convince you to do so. You will say, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. Let that that be our confession today. Where else shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. Let's pray. Dear Father, we thank you, God. We thank you, God, that you are the life. You are the one who delivers us from our death. Lord, we were in death. We were without hope. And you came to deliver us from our pitiful condition. God, we thank you for your amazing grace. We thank you for your goodness and your love. We thank you that you shone into our darkness and exposed our wickedness. And I thank you that you gave us hearts to receive the light. God, I pray that you would do a mighty work in our midst today. I pray for those of us who have lost sight of you. I pray for those of us who have been dwelling in the darkness. I pray that you would wake us up. I pray that you would open our eyes up. I pray that you would expose the darkness in our hearts. Lord, may we see repentance as a good thing. May we repent and turn back to you, and may we live. And Lord, if there's anyone who is not saved, if there's anyone who's in the darkness, who's headed for the second death, who's headed to eternal separation from God, I pray that today would be the day of salvation, that you would deliver them from your judgment and your wrath. And you bring them safely into your kingdom. I pray that you'd bring them to their knees and that they would find life today. Lord, we thank you for your word to us and your goodness. In Jesus' name, amen.